Welcome to Third and Nerd, the show that breaks down everything nerd culture with a little sport thrown in. On the show, you'll hear discussions about the latest superhero movies, TV shows, and comics as well. You'll even hear interviews from the artists and writers who helped create the characters you know and love. So strap on your super suits and fire up your flux capacitors, because here are your hosts, Josh Webb and Adam Howes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an all-new Third Nerd. Okay, now, I am going to officially go geek mode on this. Um, This is about to happen. Adam gets all of the credit for for this interview, for scoring this interview, but this happens to be a personal favorite of mine because, you know, Jerry, I'm, I'm sorry if people do this to you all the time, but I'm going to be the person that does it too. The Punisher has long been my favorite hero since I was a kid. Um, even back in the days when they had the LJN Nintendo game, I was rocking Punisher. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, 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 yeah. This is this has been such a formidable character for me, not just in 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 my own personal life, but but it professionally as well. Um, the Punisher has has just been one of those characters that keeps coming back into my life at all phases. Uh, of of said life and i just want to say uh we are privileged and honored uh to be talking to the co-creator of the punisher mr jerry conway and and thank you for joining us my friend well it's my privilege thanks guys and uh adam man you uh you absolutely get all the credit in the world for this (laughs) look yeah that's very kind of you but um you know i i just Thought I'd reach out to, to someone who also had a uh, you know big impact on my comic book uh, fandom and uh, see how we go. And I and mean, here we are. But it, but it's not just a Punisher, man. Like, how how does a human being go from creating the Punisher to also being in the, on the ground floor with Kamala Khan? Like, how the hell does that happen? <laughs> like, how much diversity do you have to have? in your portfolio to create two different characters like that? Well, I can't take any credit for Kamala Khan. Uh, I, that's, that's more of a, uh, uh, a springboarded from the name Ms. Marvel, uh, which was the character that I helped create, uh, you know, back in the mid seventies and what, what, uh, G Willow Wilson and her team, uh, put together, uh, with, Camilla Khan is just a whole nother thing and, and fantastic in its own right. So, you know, give the props to those folks, not to me. 
I want to know. I, I, I want to kick this off in the right direction, and and then we'll shoot over to Adam. I want to say, like, how I. I'm not even going to get into we'll, – we'll, we'll get into the basics of the ground up on the Punisher here in a second. But I just want to ask, how is it to create a character that is really controversial yet at the same time? I have to imagine that you're probably both blown away and not blown away by the amount of people that find – I don't know what the word you want to use is – comfort, solace – uh, 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 I don't want to say familiarity because hopefully too many people out there don't have a familiarity with what Frank does. But, you know, I, I, whatever it is with that, whatever they grasp onto that brings the Punisher close to them. Like, what, what is it like having been involved in that? Even well, it's a it's tangentially, a bit, it's a little surreal. I mean, uh, most of them. Most of the material that, that I created in comics I did uh, from the late 60s through the mid-80s with some you know, material afterwards uh, on a couple of other projects. And for the most part of that time, we, none of us thought that comics were going to be uh, uh, even around as a media uh, in a few years. You know, we were experiencing decreasing sales and so on. So for the most part, the idea that any of this would, would have resonance decades later is just, just pretty surreal. And, and the idea that it would end up uh, – that, that the comic book uh, uh, milieu would end up being so culturally significant is, is beyond surreal. It's uh, – uh, you, you live lo- – what was the line from uh, uh, Batman that if you live long enough you know, as a hero, you end up being the villain – uh, but if you if you live long enough as a as a um, uh, a creator of pop culture, you move from being on the fringe to being at the center. So it's very strange. You know, there's there's one thing about the early Punisher that no matter how much I love him, that I'm that I'm never going to forgive. And that's the phrase mercy bullets. Who who was behind that one? I mean, obviously, at the time, you guys had to come up with something because back in those days, I mean, you, you couldn't do what you can today and get away with it there there was there were different culture you you had to have something and you're gonna put this guy out there he's firing a gun you obviously have me you know i i don't know if bull or uh um what do they call those things the soft rounds were available back in the 70s i don't know what they started yeah the rubber bullets (laughs) well i think i uh, for one thing Spider-Man as a as a character and as a book, you know, was pr- primarily aimed aimed towards a younger readership, as as most comic books were at the time. So you didn't really, even though you know we were basically dealing with a uh, an assassin character, there was a bit of fudging going on, obviously, um, and we have to you know acknowledge that our audience is a younger audience and we can't really be realistic. Uh, at that at that phase and that stage, once he w- made the transition to black and white comics, uh, and then later when uh, he was brought back in the '90s, and that was the post uh, Comics Code era, then you could be more, you know, bloodthirsty <laughs> as it were. Uh, but the implication in the, in the early days would have had to have been, uh, you know, that that he wasn't a cold blooded 
I mean, that, 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 that death wasn't immediately going to follow, you know, let's put it that way. Um, but he was still a vigilante, still taking the law into his own hands, still, um, you know, acting uh, outside the law. And I think those things were still inherent in his character, even if he wasn't, you know, putting bullets through people's heads. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. And then, Adam, you jump in after this. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how much or how far away is Frank now from from what you even thought of? Like, I mean, obviously, when when you create a character, you can't think of everything that that character is going to be down the line. That, that's that's impossible. Nobody could do that. But. When you when you create a character that's sort of a vigilante special forces hero without any powers, you sort of know that special forces is going to be their power. And certainly at that time, special even today, special forces is considered to be, you know, our real life superheroes. This is as close as it gets uh, uh, to to doing that stuff and stopping bad people and so on and so forth. Uh, But. But but I don't think you could have ever imagined like the Punisher Max series, you know, no. with with Parlov and, and Ennis. Like, how far away is he from what you created or even thought he may be? Well, just just to quick uh, quickly point out that uh, actually the Punisher's special uh, superpower uh, is really his um, his willingness to 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 take it take vigilanteism to its logical conclusion. That's his superpower. Uh, it's not even that he's really a, a, a brilliant shot or anything else. It's it's that he goes where it he goes to he, he, he does what is needed to be done in his eyes. As as uh, uh, he says to Daredevil in the Daredevil Netflix series, uh, you know, you, you you just don't have the guts to do what needs to be done. <laughs> Which is you're going to take take on being a vigilante, going outside the law, and you're going to go after people who are uh, beyond the grasp of, of, of uh, the law to, to, to people cut. who are ready and willing to kill. Yeah. You have to be ready and willing to kill yourself. That's his superpower. He's the, he was at that time. And, and for many years after the only um, anti-hero because he isn't really a, a full hero, but, but, but the only anti-hero is really willing to, to go the distance, let's say. Um, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I personally don't see him as a heroic figure in that sense. I see him more as a, uh, kind of a damaged individual whose, whose, uh, actions are always going to be ambiguously moral from our point of view, but extremely moral and, and to his code from his point of view. Um, as far as how other writers have, and artists have uh, interpreted him over the years, that's one of the strengths of the character, to my mind, is that he's a, uh, a Rorschach uh, test. Uh, you bring to him what you yourself see in him. Um, so someone like Garth Ennis will bring his interpretation. You know, someone uh, uh, like Rick Remender will bring his interpretation. Steve Grant will bring his. Um, and, and all of that is really extremely valid uh and the character has a lot of layers now you know and that just accumulates over time um but he he does he does sort of reflect the era in which he's uh, uh acting 
So, you know, the Reagan era Punisher is very different from the uh, uh, George Bush era Punisher, which is very different from the Obama era Punisher and so on. Um, it sort of depends upon the political and social environment that that in which he's acting. So, Jerry, just um, take us back to, if you can, please, 1974, where uh, and it's the, like the initial stages of, your, of the approach to the creation of the character between yourself and John Romita Sr. And, and Ross Andrew. Like, can you just sort of set, set a scene for sure. us there and bring us back <clears> to <throat> that? We were doing a storyline that was going to involve uh, – the uh, return of Gwen Stacy and the, uh, as part of the uh, uh, storyline, I wanted to introduce this character, the Jackal, who was going to be integral to that. And the Jackal, in my view, was going to be something like a combination crime master slash uh, Green Goblin uh, sort of character, a, a mastermind behind the scenes, um, manipulating other People, you know, acting like a uh, uh, a puppet master to a degree. And in order to introduce him, I wanted to have a, uh, a secondary one-shot character. I was thinking him totally as a, as a one-shot uh, henchman slash assassin who would come in and be hired by the Jackal to basically take out Spider-Man. Uh, as... John and I developed the, the costume for the character. I had an, a, an initial idea for an all black outfit with a skull on the chest. And then John took that and created the iconic uh, skull image with the, um, uh, the bandolier that, uh, you know, becomes the teeth of the skull uh, and uh, really made the character look kind of impressive and incredible. Uh, we realized, okay, this, this isn't just an assassin. We, then brought it to Stan, you know, said we were, were struggling for a name for this character and Stan suggested the Punisher. And then between that, you know, all those elements coming together and then the writing of the, of the character, uh, he was, uh, and, and through the art that, uh, uh, that Ross uh, brought to it, you know, he was raised up from just being a single one-shot henchman to someone with a kind of a moral code of his own, you know, an interesting uh, backstory, uh, elements that uh, felt like they could resonate beyond just that one issue. Uh, and then we, you know, brought him back almost immediately, like uh, even before we had sales on that issue, we uh, planned a return for the character because we all thought he was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought, thought he looked pretty good. Uh, and then that you know, kept uh, got got the reader response that we were hoping for, and uh, when we uh, when Marvel decided to put together uh, these black and white books, uh, one of the first characters that we thought would work really well in a black and white uh, non code book was the Punisher, uh, which led to uh, those stories that we did with uh, uh, his origin and uh, and uh, backstory. So that's kind of how it went. I mean, it started out as, as a one-shot, uh, simple simple henchman that then grew in the collaboration into the character that, uh, you know, the iconic character that uh, he became. Right. 
Over to you, Josh. Yeah, I. You know, I'm. You, you bring up that skull, and I'm curious. Just, just for my own personal, you see a lot of that coming up nowadays in stories where you have like, I don't know this this police group or that police group or this military group having it without trying to get too much into the politics of everything. Like when, when that type of thing is absconded with and put into real life situations where it does, because this is talked about over and over again with the character, you know, he's not a hero, you know, Garth, (laughs) Garth Ennis, I thought did a, a really good opening. I think it was at the beginning of welcome back Frank, where he's like, look, this guy is not a hero. Like, and, 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 and in, defense of Frank Castle, there won't be a defense of Frank Castle, because if you're defending this, I don't know what to say. And yet there are units out there that sort of take pride in this, putting this logo on them. Like, what what is that like to you as the creator to well, see real I life people? It, I, I find it appalling you know i mean i right. I, I don't i don't i am I'm, I'm not so much appalled by it when the military uh when military people do it because right they are uh, they are basically acknowledging him as one of theirs you know and mm-hmm. and he is you know i mean he is one of theirs and the, the best case scenario that you can say about uh frank castle is that he's a uh, a wounded warrior uh you know he's psychologically wounded and I think the Netflix show did a tremendous job of, of showing that. And, so uh, good. Yeah. Uh, and really, really exploring that aspect that, you know, he is as much a victim of uh, war as, uh, as anyone. So I respect the military guys who do that. When I see it on police vehicles or police uh, uh, challenge coins as they, as they, as they do it, I, I really feel that, that that is so wrong. And so, right. so, I mean, basically, Frank is a vigilante and an outlaw. He is right. a crim- he's a criminal. He's a killer. He's, he's a guy and, cops should want to arrest. Yes, yes. And, and he is the, – the fact, that, the, the fact that he exists is actually a repudiation of the police – because if the police were effective at doing their job, theoretically, this is the notion, right, you know, that, that Frank has. Frank is, is saying, I'm doing your job because you are incapable of doing it. So he is insulting the police, in a sense. Uh, and he is, he is a rejection of the police. And the idea that they're embracing him shows that they are, at the very least, uh, extremely misinformed and possibly on a, on a darker side, uh, people who should not be allowed to enforce the law because they are, they are saying that they are on the side of a vigilante and an outlaw and someone who takes the law into his own hands and uh, acts as judge, jury and executioner, none of which is what our police should be doing. So, (laughs) you know, I, I'm appalled when I see police do it. I, I'm, I'm not, happy when when uh military guys do it but i understand why they do it and i respect them enough to to accept that uh they are seeing you know in frank uh aspects of themselves so to some, you know. to some extent when you join when you join a profession like the military 
you are acknowledging that in some way, shape, or form, you may be called upon one day to kill somebody. That is, yes, that, absolutely. That, that is that is inherently tied in to being a military member. You you may be called upon one yes. day to kill somebody, and you should be ex- doing it on a code. In other words, yep. that the thing that the thing that separates Frank from a from a pure criminal is that he does have a code. You know, that that he sees the people he is very specific about who he kills. You know, he is he is determined to only go after the bad guys uh, and he's doing it in defense of of, uh, uh, justice as a concept. Um, That's a code. You know, I mean, whether you you agree with this particular particulars of his choices, that's another thing. Uh, And the military they are there to, to defend, you know, our country. They take an oath. They are, they are, there is a military code of, of ethics and there is a military code of justice. And they uh, they are obligated to uh, follow that. Uh, so they are acting within the, the, that Frank is acting with them. Uh, the cops, on the other hand, are not. <laughs> you know, they, they are they are sworn not to do the things that Frank does. <laughs> so it is specifically antithetical to what being a police officer is, and that's why I, that's why I get upset when I see cops doing it. It's sort of like. And I've seen you comment on it, which is why I brought it up. I thought it was something like this is in a wheelhouse of what he has talked about before. Right. And I'm somewhat curious, too, if you look at what I loved, you brought up the show, what I thought the show did better than anything else. And it did a lot of things really, really, really well. But what I loved about the show is that it took a character who was hardened and formed in Vietnam and it brought him into the modern era by yes. making him a, a a casualty of our war, of our proxy war in the Middle East or whatever, whatever is going on mm-hmm. in the Middle East, whatever sense you make of it. Frank, Frank was brought from Vietnam, which is a very politically charged era into this era, which – when you tie it to the Bush Cheney administration, as it sort of seems like they were doing, you do get that controversy. We're supposed to be over yeah. here. What are we doing over here? In well, terms about- of how integral Vietnam was to the Punisher, how well do you think they've done by by bringing him into the modern era? Oh, I think it's I think it's perfectly relevant because I mean, and the truth is, you could you could have created this character in the 1940s. You could have created him, you know, in the 1920s. He war, you know, we've 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 um, uh, romanticized war prior to the Vietnam War because we won all of those. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we 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 tended to look at those as, quote, good wars, you know, where uh, our soldiers were heroic. You know, uh, they were John Wayne and, uh, uh, you know, they they, uh, they they fought the good fight. Uh, and they came home and they were lauded. They got ticket tape parades. Everybody was happy. But the truth is, if you actually do any any uh, studies of uh, returning soldiers, returning soldiers have always dealt with this kind of uh, uh, self, uh, this pain, you know, that they've had. Um, the pain that Frank had after Vietnam uh, was was the pain that any soldier who's been involved in that kind of horrible stress of uh, facing an enemy, uh, having to kill, 
uh, seeing the people that you that you uh, uh, come up with die beside you, uh, not knowing you, whether you yourself were going to die at any moment, all of that creates enormous stress on you. And while Vietnam and uh, uh, the, the uh, Iraq and the Middle East all present what we would consider obvious ambiguities, even back in World War II, there were obvious ambiguities. Uh, you know, people t people who, who served in that war, my, my uncle was at Normandy. Um, and, you know, he when he would talk about it, he'd say, you know, you, 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 you'd walk into a field of, of people that were that had been blown apart by your artillery and you'd see these German soldiers who were young guys in some cases, you know, people who were younger than you or just a, who looked just like you. You know, you can't get away from that. And unless you manage to shut down some part of your your soul, you're going to be affected by it. So uh, it, I think the reason that, that any military man can sort of relate to Frank is because Frank is any military man. Even the most successful soldiers have this internal um, angst. You know, some of them uh, deal with it in, in ways that, that make it seem like they're, they're, they, they, uh, they had a great war, you know, they, were, they felt great about it and all of that. But the truth is, they wake screaming too. Um, they, may not, they, they may not let people see it, uh, but they feel it, you know. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that, that is eternal. It's not just about Vietnam. It's not just about Iraq. It's not even about Iraq in 91. Uh, there was a great movie that came out in uh, the mid-90s, uh, Three Kings, uh, before the, the second Iraq war. Uh, fantastic film. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, fantastic film. And, and you know, it starts off with the ambiguity. Ambig Wasn't that with right the George Clooney? Beginning. George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it starts with this wonderful scene where uh, Mark Wahlberg is, is like saying, are uh, – is is a war over? Is it not over? Should I shoot this guy? Should I not shoot this guy? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. "Okay, I'm going to shoot this guy." And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's that that's that was the good war. <laughs> that was the war that we we felt was was we did a good job in, and it still was horrific for those guys. Um, you know, they came back with uh, um, uh, that that disease or lung problems that they had the. Uh, not Agent Orange, that was Vietnam, but uh, uh, Gulf, Gulf uh, War Syndrome. Remember that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so all of the, there is no such thing as a happy war. <laughs> right. I mean, there's the wars you win and you, and, you, and you try to think that they were happy. But the truth is, none of these guys come home undamaged. Uh, and that's why I think Frank is so relatable to, to warriors. Is that, in a sense, does it make Frank one of the more important characters? And I realize that part of this is, is somewhat self-aggrandizing if you say yes, and I'm putting you in an awkward position. <laughs> but, but I'm being truthful here. Is, is it not make him one of the more, because he serves an actual function. This yeah. is, for some soldiers, a way to see their life flipped and, 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 and it gives them somebody that they can relate to, somebody yeah. who, you know, depending on the writer, some of these writers obviously have military experience and they take that with them. But but 
you know, it, it, it's almost seems like he's one of the more important characters because he does provide an outlet for soldiers. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the extent that Captain America could have been that too, right. uh, you know, that I, I think that that's certainly true. I mean, there's, there are very few characters uh, in comics that are military based, you know, I mean, they're, they're obviously the, the war comics uh, of the sixties, uh, had had quite a number of them, but many of those were sort of you know pushed to the comical end or to the to the to the less realistic end. You know uh, the the opportunity that Frank presents is sort of a post Vietnam era consciousness about the the costs of war personally, and that's something that only came about because Vietnam coincided with a cultural moment of exploring uh, uh, the pain, you know, that 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 war can cause. Uh, I mean, World War II did that, too. I mean, one of the great films of all time is The Best Years of Our Lives, which is about returning soldiers uh, from World War II. Um, but it's it, it didn't produce a uh, uh, a soul searching the way that, that Vietnam did. And that soul searching continues to this day. And that's a good thing because, you know, we need to recognize that our warriors are people who, um, you know, we, we owe a great deal to and also are going to be permanently dealing with their issues, whether they're uh, medical issues or, you know, psychological issues or just social issues. Because you can't if you once you've been through something like that, it's really hard, I think, for anyone to just return to society, a society that hasn't experienced what they've experienced. And I guess to the extent that Frank Castle offers a, um, uh, a, a sympathetic ear, let's say, or a sympathetic view, uh, even if it's, uh, even if you take him as a, as a, as a, uh, a bad guy, it's at least recognizable to a warrior who's been through a war, you know, they can say, yeah, I, I get why he's like that. I don't want to be like that myself, but I get why he's like that. And the people who do are doing this get me to some degree. And they've undoubtedly, um, oh, sorry, Adam, jump in. Oh, thanks, mate. Uh, I'm just interested to know, Jerry, like over the, the 46 years that the, the character has been um, around, like, have you? <laughs> it's a long time, right? <laughs> like, it's a long time. Even for me, when I was saying that, I was like, "Wow." Um, have you like had a lot of feedback from like vets who are fans? Um, like whether it's been in recent years or from the from the jump of the character? Like, it's just sort of. You know, I mean, and- when we first did it, no, because you know it, it, it didn't. You know, he was obviously a kind of a character, you know, in the in the early days, uh, he was more of a, uh, a costumed character than, than mm. he is now. Uh, but I found that at, at conventions, uh, you know, sometimes vets will come up to me. I mean, I was at a convention in Norfolk, uh, Virginia uh, last uh, last year. I think it was last year. Um, and uh, that's right near the naval base, you know, the, the uh, and so there were a lot of military people who were coming through. And, you know, there were quite a substantial number of people who said that they really liked the Punisher and uh, that they they thought he was a cool character. I mean, I I, I, by this point, I I, I sort of feel ashamed to take any credit for it because 
I haven't had a an ongoing relationship with the character uh, in decades. Uh, I've written mm. some stories, you know, here and there uh, featuring the character, but I, I don't have very much to do with the direction of the character now. But to the extent that I can, you know, take some credit for it, I'm, I'm certainly happy to. <laughs> but, uh, I, I give a lot of credit to the to the guys who are working on it now. And, the, and uh, I wish there were some women who were working on it because, you know, uh, it would be nice to have uh, a female military. Becky, uh, Becky Clunan did a did a hell of a run there uh, yes. for, for a hot minute. I was going to bring her up and ask what you had thought of her run. I thought because she was one of the few women that stand out. When you come across a female yeah. writer of the Punisher, it stands out. <laughs> and I yeah. thought her no, work stood out. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I haven't followed the book as much as I should. So I, I'm, Fair I, I can't honestly say that, you know, I'm uh, that familiar with Becky's work. But I'm glad that some women have worked on the book. I, I think it would be great to have more. Uh, I agree. Uh, women on it, you know, I, but I think that's true in general. I think, you know, it, it just helps, it helps okay. fill out the, fill out the stories, uh, when you've got more, uh, more voices from different points of view coming in. And that was one of the advantages that seriously, that was one of the advantages of people like Garth Ennis and, and, uh, Warren Ellis, uh, coming in from, uh, Scotland, Scotland and, and England is that they bring in, uh, the British point of view, w- looking in from the outside at America, and the guy who who uh, ran the show uh, uh, on Netflix is also a British uh, writer, uh, so he was able to come in. And when you have that outsider viewpoint, it gives you another way of of seeing the characters and and uh, uh, identifying interesting elements about the characters that we may ourselves not see. Yeah, no, that's it, it, man. I you list all these great writers, and I'm I'm jumping through my head thinking of people who I would actually love to like. Kelly Thompson is one person who just does phenomenal work in comics. I would love to see her take over Frank Castle sure, sure. for a good and lengthy run. Hell, I, I I think it would be interesting to see G Willow Wilson go from yeah. like Miss Marvel to Frank Castle. Sure. Give me that any day of the week. One of my favorite Frank Castle bits that I ever saw was in the the Ultimate Universe uh, uh, version of him, where he, I think it was introduced in uh, the Ultimates. Um, yes, where it was just he, just a, this this opening page of Frank Castle killing this, Frank Castle killing that, Frank Castle killing that. <laughs> it was just one thing after another, where he's shooting this person, then he's over here shooting this person, you're over here. And it was played almost for laughs. And I, I thought, well, that's fun. <laughs> that's yeah. Way to do it, you know? Because, I, as I say, he's, he's a Rorschach test. You know, you come in from any point of view and, and do it, you know. Um, he, in a way, he sort of reminds me. I'm currently rereading the Shadow novels uh, from the 30s. And one of the great things about the Shadow, at least in the first decade or so that he was around, was he, he was not the focus of the storytelling. It was his aides that were the focus. And so you would see you would do an entire story from the point of view of one of one of the aides and the shadow would come in and out. I could see like doing a a whole Punisher series in which you're basically doing the story from the points of view of the cops pursuing him or the points of view of the, the bad guys who he's after or the points of view of people who he's saving along the way. Um, 
you know, he doesn't have to be the the uh, the center point uh, of a story, too. Uh, so there's a lot of I mean, there's just so many different approaches that a character like that allows you. This you, you opened yourself up to it. Now I'm I'm going to kick the door in. You mentioned that, you know, what you like in Punisher stories and Punisher stories that you have read. Now it's time to put it all on the table. What are some of your favorite Punisher stories that you have not written? <laughs> well, uh, well, that's that's tough. I do like Welcome Back, Frank. I mean, that that uh, Garth Ennis, I think, did a phenomenal job. He punched a polar uh, bear in that. Like, if yeah. that's not the most epic move in any Frank Castle <laughs> book ever, I don't know what is. Yeah, and I and I liked uh, I, I I liked uh, obviously when Stephen Grant and uh, Mike Zek brought him back, you know that very muscular, uh, uh, over the top, uh, '80s version of, of Frank Castle was was kind of cool too, um, and I, I do like what Rick Remender did when he brought him to L.A. So you know, there's I I dip my toe in and I I dip my toe out. I, I'm I'm not. Uh, as as uh, uh, I, I don't read that character as much as I, I read some other characters because uh, well, who are created some of your him, favorite characters yeah. bebopping around in the Marvel universe right now? Oh well, in the Marvel and DC universe, I mean, I, I love Tom King's uh, uh, version of Batman. Oh yes, and I, loved, I and I loved Scott Snyder's version of Batman. Uh, so, you know, I'm both a, both a new 52 and uh, rebirth <laughs> fan of those two. Um, I really enjoyed uh, what Kelly Sue did with Captain Marvel. Uh, oh, yes. Margaret Stoll's uh, version of Captain Marvel also. I think um, Margaret Stoll, it, like Kelly Sue redefined her, but I have like Margaret Stoll's storytelling just to touch above, just to touch yeah. above yeah. In, in the top yeah. five. Definitely. And uh, I really did. Uh, I am a, a big fan of Camilla Khan and uh, G. Willow Wilson. Uh, I'm actually a Squirrel Girl fan. Uh, among, among, I actually, I think I prefer at Marvel the tongue-in-cheek uh, versions of the characters uh, that uh, uh, populated books, you know, like like Squirrel Girl uh, and even uh, uh, Moon Girl and Dinosaur. Uh, Devil uh, dinosaur. Or, or, or dinosaur. I enjoyed that. Um, you know, I, my my reading is eclectic. You know, I, I I like a lot of independent stuff. I was in a valiant phase where I was reading uh, when they did their reboot a few years ago. Uh, I was really into that for a couple of years. I just started reading Greg Rucka's. I know it finally hit ABC as a show. But I oh, didn't Stumptown? realize. Yeah. St- yeah, I didn't realize Stumptown was based on a comic. But yeah. I was in Hawaii and I saw the books there, and I was like, "What?" Yeah. And so yeah, I picked, it's really good I picked, stuff. Yeah, I picked up though. I'm almost done with the fourth and final one that he's put out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Greg yeah. Ruck is always good. Like, oh, I, yeah. all, all I needed to see was that it was Stumptown and written by Greg Ruck. I didn't even need to look at the art. I knew I'd love it. But well, it was yeah, also was uh, he had another another uh, uh, series, uh, Whiteout. Which right. was made into a, a film with, with Kate Beckinsale, uh, which is not a very good film. But I mean, it's not a bad film, but it's not as just good not as one the of book. those very good yeah. ones. Yeah, it's uh, the the book is terrific. You know, the 
the uh, the series there is terrific. Um, I'll have to check that out because I happen yeah. to be a Kate Beckinsale fan as well. Like yes, any yeah. any any hot blooded American well, she male. Looks good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just it's just that she I don't think she's credible as the character uh, and the character in the in the, the the graphic novel I believe was much tougher you know than than she comes across as. But that's fine. I, you know, I'm it's just, of, it's just casting. I'm kind of feeling like. Like, I know there has to be some sort of relatability to Colbert, Kobe Smolder's character, and maybe I just need to watch more episodes of Stumptown because I'm only, like, five of of five episodes into the first part of the season or whatever they're mm-hmm. doing it. Um, but uh, I, I feel like the Dex Perios in the novel or in the graphic novel is so much more um, – she's so much more aware and badass. And I and I hope that she Dex becomes that in this series as it progresses. Yeah, I think well, that's, that's the thing is that uh, I think if 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 this series was being done for Netflix uh, or FX, let's say, um, she'd be a much more hard hard edged character. Uh, but because it's being done uh, as a network TV show there are pressures to make these characters more quote likable, uh, you know, and, and sympathetic, uh, which tends to water them down a bit. Um, but even so she's for, for, for a, uh, a network TV show and an ABC network TV show at that it's, uh, she's pretty gritty. I mean, she, you I know, like it's, her. It's, yeah, it's my wife's favorite show of this, of the network season right now. And she doesn't, she hasn't read the comics. So she, uh, is just approaching it as as for what it is, and uh, as such, you know, I think it, I think it delivers the goods for. I mean, she's kind of an interesting. She's not uh, she's not infallible, you know. She uh, can get her ass whooped, but she can stick it out and whip it back, you know. Uh, she should be more military, I think, than yes, she is coming across as. Thank but, you. But, you know, I'm glad that's somebody. Okay. I'm glad somebody with more authority than me feels that because I was watching an episode last night and, and it was the second part of the one with Donald Logue uh-huh. uh, where where she fights back after after he beats her in that first part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I looked at my roommate and I, and I was like, you know, she's supposed to be military intelligence yeah. like. That's the part that bugs me. There's a small aspect of it where I feel like she's gotten over on way too quickly for somebody who was military intelligence. That's not yeah. to say everybody who's in military intelligence is a genius, but she's written as a a qualified, very qualified individual from military intelligence. Right. That's how they've written her. So yeah. I just kind of felt like in, in some of those scenes, I feel like she's – taken way too easily <laughs> well, it's, it's that's that's network tv writing <laughs> to say it you know i mean part of the problem there is is just uh it's it, it it's it's a result of net, network sensibilities um you know they, they, there's a certain pressure to to deliver a certain type of character and that's what you end up doing. Uh, it's it's a lot harder to uh, in a show that's supposed to 
ultimately be kind of a kind of a a family crime show rather than a, right. a hard edged you know uh, ten it's o'clock NBC show. After all. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a nine o'clock show. It's not a ten o'clock show. It's so <laughs> as a result, it's a little bit wishy washy, you know. It's um, it's, it's not serious like crime hitters, the shield yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's why I say if it was on Netflix, if it was on uh FX, you would have a different kind of sensibility. But it's but for what it is, you know, for for, for an ABC nine o'clock family show. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty good. You know, it, it delivers on a level that I'm actually fairly surprised that they do. I mean, her bisexuality, for example, is just sort of like there, yeah. you know, that's just very cool. Um, and it, 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 it's neither hammered nor ignored. It's just there. Yep. Uh, so I like that. Um, Which is exactly how it's written in the comic, you know, she's just sort of she'll make these comments in conversation that 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 are not forced. They they're very natural. Like, yeah, yeah, I can see somebody of her wit making that comment. It's not sad outside her personality. Right. Exactly. So we should uh, also make mention at this point, Jerry, that um, you've had an illustrious career in screenwriting for well over 20 years now. Um, so just in case some of the listeners aren't aware, so your knowledge of TV and, and talking on TV shows shows through just, you know, based on that. Um, and when you look through like your, the back catalog of shows you've worked on, there's actually one show you worked on uh, that has a connection to a to previous this show. We've had on this show. <laughs> Josh must have been going to ask the same question. I did. Same thing. I did. I looked and I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> what, what show is that? Which we one? had Vincent what... D'Onofrio on as a guest. Oh, oh, Vincent. Yeah, great. Yes. What a terrific, what a terrific guy he is. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing actor. An outstanding, outstanding person, outstanding guest, outstanding human being. Like, mm-hmm. But I saw that Law and Order Criminal Intent, and I was like, "Hey, he had a good run on that too." Yeah. <laughs> I bet, yeah, I bet, I bet he wrote some of the, my favorite episodes. Oh, it's possible. I mean, uh, I had I had an influence on the show in general too. I mean, whether uh, they were my episodes or not, you know, sometimes notions or ideas that. that uh, percolated through my head okay. ended up on other people's shows too. Okay. So, then then uh, you'd be a good person to ask this question. So my roommate always called my, my old roommate back in the day when I was an undergrad and he's actually my fraternity brother. He always used to call him super cop. <laughs> Cause he's like, there's no damn cop in the world that is this good. Well, he, I mean, he, the premise of the show is that he's Sherlock Holmes. Right. Uh, oh, okay. That's, yeah, that that was. I mean, he, it it wasn't so much that, um, uh, as opposed to some of the other shows where the cops are more um, uh, do 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 more um, uh, uh, simple investigating, you know, follow the leads and so on. Right. He puts clues. He puts clues together and can look at look at a situation and uh, do the Sherlock Holmes thing. Uh, and even in the 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 uh, fourth act uh, uh, interrogation scenes, he's using his ability to uh, analyze and put together obscure clues to <laughs> create this kind of 
uh, the, the fourth the act was some of my favorite stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. We used to call those the arias uh, mm-hmm. because they I were basically why. yeah they were basically a, 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 a Vincent had a monologue that he had to to work through, um, and as a, as a character he was very atypical for the Law and Order universe. He was not really he didn't really fit in. No. With, the reality of the, the law and order universe. And it would have been hard for me to see him working with like Briscoe or somebody <laughs> yeah, or green. Yeah. Like it's just really difficult to see that coming. Well, that's why it got so weird when we had to uh, uh, bring Chris Noth in uh, as, as uh, his, his character, Logan, you know, because Vince, Vincent couldn't uh, maintain the 22 episode schedule. Uh, and we brought in uh, Chris Noth, you know, as a sort of alternating character, uh, because Noth is purely a gumshoe detective. And uh, in that, what we kind of flipped around with that was that his his female sidekick was the Sherlock. <laughs> and, right. And he was right. he was the, he was the uh, the Watson who would figure things out, but only after she'd sort of set them up for him. (laughs) So uh, it was a a weird, weird setup. It was a good show, though. I I have Criminal Intent was honestly my favorite Law and Order. Now, don't get me wrong. My favorite run on Law and Order is is um, it was the couple of seasons where I want to say, was it Ben Green was his name, I think? Uh, was was the ADA? Uh, I want to. If this was the original Law and Order, I want to say was it Ben Green that was the ADA? It was. You mean the the the, the head of the ADA, the, the guy above Michael Moriarty? I think so. This was early, early Law and Order, like like George Dezenza early. Like wow, that's first season. Um, yeah, like but, it's yeah. it's it's right around then. I want to say it was like no later than than the fourth season or so that he was the ADA. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who played him, but it's well, it's Michael super- Moriarty was the first ADA. Uh, yes, first I think it's Michael one. Moriarty. Hold yeah. on a second. Yeah, oh, Mori- Moriarty, and then he was followed by. Uh, uh, Oh, the, uh, so bad when you when your brain starts to fade. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I'm, I'm uh, there. Yes, Michael Moriarty is exactly yeah. who I was talking about. Yeah, Moriarty was, was an interesting guy. Yeah, Ben Stone. His name was Ben Stone. Okay, derp. I That's said fun. Ben Green. I was I was just a little wrong there. Yeah, my favorite run was right then. I lo- I felt. That the the episodes hadn't quite reached the pop culture uh, aim that they were going for, but you could tell they were touching on topics of the day. Mm -hmm. They just weren't ripping straight from the headlines. And I always felt that those those shows ended with a lot of philosophical cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was more ambiguity in those early seasons, I think, uh, about – the original impulse, I think, on doing this show uh, goes back to the 
kinds of crime shows and uh, uh, legal shows of the early 1960s, because the creator, Dick Wolf, uh, he would have cut his teeth emotionally as a, as a viewer on, the, on shows like The Defenders uh, and um, uh, the, the, the NYPD, uh, which were shows from the early 60s. And those shows, kind of, and Naked City, uh, those shows sort of created this kind of moral ambiguity about policing and about justice, about whether uh, justice was possible, you know, in a system. And then by the late 60s, we were we were seeing a lot of TV that was just total gung-ho, cops are great, you know, Adam 12, right. <laughs> you know, Dragnet, you know, we're all cool, everything is great. And that was a totally different mindset, you know. And then the ambiguity started coming back in again around the time of Hill Street Blues, which is where Dick Wolf started out uh, writing for Hill Street Blues. And once he jumped over and started creating his own shows, the shows that he drew on for his own emotional connection to the material was shows like The Defenders and shows like uh, Naked City, where you had this kind of uh, moral ambiguity about justice, you know, whether, whether justice was possible. And I thought that was a, that was a really interesting approach that he tried to take in those early seasons when he was running it directly himself. And then, you know, as time goes by, other people come in and become showrunners and they have their own uh, approaches to the material and their own attitudes and, and their own history, you know, that they're drawing on. So, with one of the last things that I'm curious about here is you, you, we started this interview talking about the jackal <laughs> and it's funny because as you were talking about the jackal, I'm thinking, man, like imagine starting this whole thing with the jackal who went on to himself, have one of the most controversial storylines uh, in, in Marvel, I think amongst faith for what it's worth, I'm on the side of, I enjoyed the clone conspiracy. I am not one of those people who hated it. I, I, I liked it. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, the original clone story or the, uh, the one that followed it, the one that I believe it was the one that followed it with, uh, with Kane Ben Riley. Yeah. yeah ben yeah. Riley and, and, and the Jackal, like, I actually enjoyed it. Like I, I sat down um, last summer and I pulled up uh, the reading list for the entire clone saga, like the wow. entire <laughs> thing. And I sat there and I read it and I'm like, I can see if you only read bits and part pieces of this, that why you wouldn't like it. It's a very convoluted story, but at the same time, if you read everything that's involved, it's not convoluted at all. It, it's totally streamlined. It makes a ton of sense. But if mm -hmm. you were to like parse it out and assume that, okay, they didn't read this, but they read that, then you're like, yeah, I can see where the convoluted nature of the story comes in for you. But I actually yeah. rather enjoyed it. Well, like, I, I that's thought, great. Yeah. I thought it was good writing. Like, what, what do you make of that? Like, what, what do you, like, well, I, I didn't actually read it. I, I didn't read it at the time. I sort of came in when I when I came back to Marvel in the uh, uh, mid to late eighties. Uh, it, it had already happened, obviously, and I was uh, I, I 
picked up pieces of it, you know, for my own stories. Uh, but my my take when I was when I first heard about it was, oh, because the way, the way it was pitched to me was that, oh, it's going to turn out that the, that uh, we've been following the clone all along after uh, uh, issue one forty nine. And I thought, oh, that means that basically Spider-Man ended, ended when I left the book. That's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, from an ego point of view. <laughs> but, I have no uh, issue with this. <laughs> but obviously it was much more interesting and complicated than that. I've, I've never read the whole, the whole thing, so I don't have an opinion on it. Uh, but I think it's, uh, I think it's you know, if, if readers get invested in a story, that's really what you want. You know, you want people to have opinions. Uh, the worst thing is when uh, you put something out there and it, it makes no impact. Uh, if people hate what you do, that's that means you've done your job uh, because you've gotten them thinking and, and emotionally connected to it. People hated the, the death of Gwen Stacy storyline. Oh, yes, uh, they did. But but that's fine. You know, I mean, that that meant that we had an emotional impact. Uh, it's the stories that that go out there and land without any raising any dust that are uh, are failures in my view Jerry I am um, I always uh, like to ask our guests uh, this sort of uh, a question along these lines um, especially like people like yourself who have worked in, in comic books like are, are you a comic book collector per se uh, I was I'm not anymore I I Sort of, I gave that, I gave up collecting about ten years ago. Uh, I've, right. I've been a kind of a collector for most of my life, uh, and had a fairly substantial collection. Um, then I switched over to pulp collecting uh, back in the early two thousands because it was just too expensive for me to collect comics anymore. Uh, and I got rid of most of my. Uh, pulp collection and uh, a good portion of my comic book collection, although I still have an entire storage unit that uh, has stuff in it, <laughs> which I my kids are going to have to inherit. <laughs> I, I, I have to ask, is, is there an issue of Fantastic Four number 50 with a letter that you wrote to it when you were a oh, kid? Yes. You yes, got that? I, I, nice. have, I don't know that I have it, but there is, uh, I mean, I, I would like to think I have it somewhere. I don't know. I haven't looked through my collection in a long time. <laughs> uh, I just actually gave my uh, son-in-law uh, my bound volume of uh, the first year of Spider-Man that I wrote, uh, which oh, was wow. the death of Gwen Stacy, because my daughter wanted to buy him the uh, death of Gwen Stacy issue as a as a present, and then she found out how much it cost. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, "I can't do that, you know, I can't get it for him." And I said, "Well, I have a bound volume, you know, I'll I'll, I'll be happy to sign it, you know, and and send it to you guys because you're going to get it eventually anyway." Yeah, yeah. At a certain point, like you're yeah. like, I, ha- "I I can cover that one for you." <laughs> And then my then uh, my family uh, for Christmas this year they gave me a uh, what looks like I think it's like an eight point six quality uh, copy of one twenty nine so that's kind of neat you know I didn't have a a single issue of of the uh, Punisher 
uh, first issue. Uh, I have oh, wow. the bound issue. Yeah, but they gave that to me. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to sign that and I'm going to get it uh, um, um, CGC'd, you know, with my signature and uh, keep it aside for them for, uh, I guess, my grandson's college fund. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm curious, man, because because you bring this up, like how when people do interviews with you, how difficult is it for them to choose to like say, I want to spend this interview talking about the Punisher with Jerry, as opposed to like I want to talk about the, the death of Gwen Stacy, like like well, how I mean that's it's so much up to, It's your it's whatever your interest is, right? It's not right. Uh, I can talk about anything, but, uh, you know, it's what 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 you as a as a interviewer uh, is uh, where your interests lie. Um, you know, uh, there, there's only a limited amount of time we have in the right, day. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, I, and my career does span like 30 or 40 years worth of comic mm-hmm. writing. So, so much uh, good stuff. you can you can pick and choose. Yeah, it's <laughs> just like. It's maddening to try and decide, like, do I want to talk about my favorite character in all of Marvel or do I want to talk about the death of Gwen Stacy? Like, like <laughs> not that's, even that's, just, why, that's why we like, have second like, second conversations, right? Heck, you know what? <laughs> hey, you brought it up. Go ahead, Adam. I'm sure at what some point you we will. <laughs> yeah, look, that would be great. Like, and, and you know, because just on the point of what we're saying, like trying to jam as much stuff in, like there was one thing um, – but I do want to ask you about, but I'll we'll save it for another time if that opportunity presents itself. And that was like uh, your your X Men screenplay that didn't get off the ground. But I feel like that would be a conversation all <laughs> That's in a itself. conversation on its on its own right. Yeah, yep. that, that leads into yep. the whole film writing uh, career, which is another another aspect. Which is another mind. conversation. Yeah. So now we're on <laughs> issue, we're, now we're on uh, interview number four five with you. So. <laughs> And we haven't even touched on much of the DC stuff, so, you know. No, no. No, we haven't even gotten there yet. So that's six interviews we've lined up with Jerry. <laughs> no, I am. And, and, you know, what I'll say about the, the Gwen Stacy thing is this. Like, it, it, I feel like if it if you're getting emails like, oh, I hate it. Oh, I love it. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I love it. Then you've done something right, because if you get yeah. that visceral reaction where people can't tell whether they love it or they hate it, those are going to be the moments. Those are going to be the moments 10, 20, yeah. 30 years from now that you look back and you're like, dude, you need to read this story. Like if you're a Spider-Man fan and you haven't read The Death of Gwen Stacy, like at the time, it just seems so controversial, right? But really with the benefit of hindsight is you're like, how would you not do that to P- Peter Parker? Like, how how does that not make sense on some level to do that to Peter Parker right. as a writer? Well, it like, makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense to me too. Like, this is a guy – what I related to about Peter Parker is one day when I was driving – the best way to summarize this is one day I was driving home from work as an undergrad and I'm turning down my street – and the axle on my car breaks at the same time that my transmission blows. <laughs> I'm not That's joking. A Peter Parker moment. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. And and as I'm calling my the our, our the head of our fraternity to come and help me, he just looks at me and he's a very philosophical dude. He just looks at me and he's like, you know, dude, I could drive for another thirty years and this will never happen to me. This will probably happen <laughs> to you twice. And it was in that moment that I realized, like, yeah, 
yeah, that's about my luck. And that's what I related to with Peter Parker, because not only would something be going wrong, but then on the way home, like he'd had to have a huge rip in his ass or something with his uniform, <laughs> you know, like it's just crazy. Like everything that can go wrong went wrong with that guy. Well, that's and kind I, of, that was kind of the approach, you know, it's, it was always my attitude about him is that, uh, he was a bit of a sad sack, you know, and and uh, a lovable sad sack, but you know, still a sad sack. Uh, right. You know, and that's uh, that's I think why we all sort of relate, even if even if that's not true about us, you know, it feels like it is. You know, it's uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, that sticks in your head. You know, yeah, I'm uh, my life is you know going to fall apart at any moment. Dude, dear, you don't you don't follow me, but I I was fortunate to go on a cruise. I don't know if I was fortunate. I was fortunate to go on a cruise that somebody else covered. They covered a 15 day cruise, but everything that could go wrong on that cruise went <laughs> went wrong, up to and including me having to put down my animal over Facetime. Oh gosh, that's really yeah. brutal. Yeah. And and I dis I disembarked in Ensenada and that was that. But like anything that can go wrong in life tends to happen to me. And so in that I I find solace with Peter Parker. Like I'm like if if somebody is thinking of this stuff to write it, that means other people are experiencing it or they themselves experience this kind of unfortunate like these mishaps, you know, so it, it makes you feel just a little bit better knowing that there's people out there who, if nothing else, can understand what you're going through on some small level. Yep. Yep. So, well, we have been fortunate to have you for about an hour. So we will we will be kind enough to wrap this up here. And like you said, we will just have to work with you to bring you back on to continue to talk about this stuff, because to be honest, I've still got a million more questions and I didn't even get to half of what I wanted to talk about. Cause I went into fanboy mode on you. Uh, oh, fine. Hey, didn't I, I, I say this with all sincerity that, that character, the Punisher has, has been, it's gotten me through some really tough times, not cause I was in the military or anything like that, but because I was able to, when I'm having the worst times, I throw myself into comics. Like I'll just sit there and read because I can imagine this stuff in my head. I can do that. I'm, I'm, I'm a very imaginative person. So that's why I love to read comics is it all just kind of comes together when I'm already staring at the narration. I can just put myself in that scene mm-hmm. as sort of an, as bystander. And, and <clears throat> the Punisher's gotten me through some really tough times because that's what I was throwing myself into and grinding it out. So to that end, man, I just want to say thank you because you have, you have very few opportunities in life, I find, to thank people who really were formative in creating who you are. And whether or not you wrote all those issues, you still created the dude. He was very formative in, in, in me becoming what I am. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're very <laughs> kind. So what and I'll thanks do at, for having me on, guys. Yeah. What I'll do at this point is I'll give you the chance to tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to interact with you. Well, I am on Twitter as uh, Jerry Conway. Uh, just look for the uh, the blue check mark uh, next to Jerry Conway. 
And uh, any other projects upcoming that you can talk about? We know that, that as with with any writer, there's always some projects they can and some projects they can't. But we like to give you the opportunity. If you want, the floor is yours for any projects that are upcoming. If not, no worries. Well, I have a. Uh, looks like I have another Spider-Man miniseries coming up, so that'll be fun. Yes. Uh, it's, it's taking a. Uh, 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 it's exploring an idea that uh, uh, I don't think people have really kind of explored before. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it. I look forward to reading that because I, I believe the last thing I picked up was yours was the what if. Uh, Flash Thompson became Spider-Man, which is really well written, by the way. I love that entire What If series. That entire What If series had some really strong writers on it. So, thank you, uh, Adam. Any last words? Uh, I'd just like to say thank you for coming on on the show, Jerry, and being uh, generous with your time and uh, your answers uh, to everything. Um, Like Josh said, uh, I've still got a million things backed up in my my. notes here um but we'll save that for another time if, if uh, you'd be so gracious that'd be amazing so thank you once again thank and you between thank spider-man you and the punisher you've 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 created a lot of childhoods my friend between spider-man and the punisher so i uh, just want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of third and nerd as always we'd love to thank our guest jerry conway for coming on uh you can find us on stitcher and itunes i believe scotty is working on uh, we have ported almost everything over and we will be on iTunes shortly. So keep on the lookout for that. Thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you guys next time.